welcome to OperaCast, your one-stop shop for all the latest opera news, reviews, interviews and general chit-chat. I'm David Ward. Coming up this month, it's my favourite time of the year with new season announcements from Welsh, North and Metropolitan Operas. We have the inside scoop on awards season and an exclusive interview with the fantastic Samoan tenor Amitai Patti. Uh, a very warm welcome to my two guests this month, two OperaCast regulars. Hello, Emma Black. Hello, David. Thank you for having me. Not at all. How are things? Yeah, really good. It's a lovely sunny day where I am. Um, and I'm home for the first time in about two months for like a good chunk of time. So it's really nice. Because you've just been up in Scotland for this two-year postponed dream, haven't you? Yes, I've had... I mean, it's, it's topping my list of favourite jobs ever. I was assisting on the sort of revival of Scottish's um, A Midsummer Night's Dream, the Benjamin Britten. We started rehearsing it two years ago. We stopped and then we kind of brought it out of the box again this year and it's just finished its shows up in Glasgow and Edinburgh and it's just a wonderful amalgamation of right people, right production, uh, really gorgeous music making from everyone involved. It was a privilege to be in the room. It's had such good reviews as well, hasn't it? I mean, it's obviously something that you enjoy doing and... Yeah, and it was, yeah, and I, and I think the reviews are very deserved because it has, yeah, it's just, it's, um, the stage called it an instant classic, which like my kind of like proud mother in me, I was like, yes, it is, it's really good. So, yeah. Good. Well, Bye. congratulations from us. And uh, also a hello to Helen Harrison. Good afternoon. Hello. Nice to be here again. And talking about postponed projects, I see finally your Carmen is getting underway. Another one that's been, what, two odd years in the making? I, exactly. So it's it just feels good that it's finally happening after countless reschedules. But but the one other sad thing is because of COVID, quite a few cast changes because of people's circumstances changing. Um, but we're very pleased we've got a, a great cast together and it's good that we can kind of, um, not about you, but it feels good to finish unfinished business. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds, sounds very mafia there, sort of. <laughs> That's what I know, wrong opera, sort of. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but I have to say as well that um, it's a real pleasure to see Emma online, but actually we did finally meet for the first time in person last week, which was so nice. After it was lovely. So many times. We were quite excited, weren't we? Yes. yes. <laughs> and then we had a lovely gossip, which is my favourite thing to do. No gossip. Yeah, well, it, I mean, that kind of theme of things really getting back to some sort of normal, I think, is a, is a kind of a key theme running running through today um kicking off with those new season announcements kind of companies getting back up to to full speed finally uh this morning we had opera north's 22 23 season lots of interesting things in there uh revival of traviata concerts version of gluck's orfeo that was a postponed project um a new reimagining of monteverdi's um orfeo with south asian arts sort of integrating classical south asian music with the monteverdi sounds fascinating a revival of Tosca, a new production of Ariadne Auf Naxos, and a revival of Vixen. Uh, Welsh National Opera as well, just to kind of run through that before we discuss them. Uh, they've got five new productions next season, six in total. Migrations, The Macropolis Affair, or The Macropolis Case, Laboem, Cherry Tree, Moscow, Blaze of Glory, which is a new work about a small group of miners starting a male voice choir, brilliant, uh, and The Magic Flute. Um, so Helen, I kind of wanted to read those out together because both of those seasons to me speak of yes, renewal, but also actually both companies really wanting to look at opera in new ways, either reimaginings of work or, or creating new work for, for their communities. They're very kind of positive, ambitious seasons. 
Absolutely, and I, I thought of looking at the uh, Upper North season as well. I think I think the office you've always ch- talked about. I can't I can't wait to see that. And but also the Mozart Requiem, I think, is with uh, Phoenix Dance Company. Yeah. yeah. So I can't wait to see that. And also, I just think um, here in the Requiem, as we all know, because it was when um, E and O did it, I think during lockdown. It's so thrilling with an opera chorus, and I've done it with an opera chorus, and it it's wow. So I think I think that's great. I love like the reimagining of kind of existing things, but I think it's so important to have new things and just to switch um, over to Wales. I think the the Will Todd will be something real, and and again, so many different groups involved. So I I love it when you see something and you're like, I can't wait to see how how it's all going to work together. Um, and also the blaze of glory. I think that's, you know, it's, it's really good when, you know, it's so relevant and, yeah, new as well is good. And also just the, the saying the, the youth opera, there's a Cherry Town, Moscow, um, Shoskowitz. So there's, it's really great that everything's coming back. Yeah, as you say, the community groups kind of get involved there, the youth opera, the full exactly. choruses, orchestras, the full tour returning, you know, it does, it does seem like a... Uh, a new dawn. Snee said it does seem like Vixen is is where Catchy was two years ago when everybody was doing. Everyone's doing Vixen. Yeah, exactly. So it's OHP, uh, Longborough was it, and Ian have just, just, just done, done it. it. And it does seem to be that is the one that you have to do. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not sure why. Maybe because it's sort of slightly ecological. It's Maybe quite that's... short and manageable. It's good for young. Can be good for younger audiences. Although it's quite a sort of harrowing story. It's a bit like, um, what was that children's TV show that was terrifying? Oh, Animals of Farthing Wood. Animals of Farthing Wood, where they had to like cross the road and people died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, very sad. <laughs> terrifying. Um, but anyway, Emma, what, what, anything kind of caught your eye from from those? I, I mean, I think it's both companies. I love it. It's a mixture of uh, what we might call tent poles. So you've got your Tosca, you've got your Traviata, you've got your Bohem, over in Cardiff, um, as well as kind of new new things and also new productions. Um, I think it's it's a nod to both audiences that I think all these companies are trying to uh, accommodate to for in that it's you've got your regulars who want to come and see and you have an inbuilt audience there and you want to kind of keep them happy and show them, you know, they want to see the classics because the classics are classics for a reason, but also uh, opening out the art form as we should all be doing to um, an audience that might not have come along before and whether that's through community work or through reimagined works of our favourites. I think it's from both organisations, I think it's really clever programming um, and I want to see all of it. Um, and especially actually the youth company doing what I know, I call it Paradise Moscow, but they've renamed it Cherry Tree Moscow. Um, they are, RNCM did a production of it, gosh, probably getting over 10 years ago now. And I was living in Leeds at the time, crossed the Pennines to go and see it. And it's a brilliant show. And there's so many parts in it. And for, for young voices in particular, it's a, it's a brilliant piece to do. I think what you said there, Emma, is, is, is absolutely key to both of these seasons. Often with, with the big opera companies, you know, they might have a really active education and outreach program, but you don't see kind of their a sense of place on the main stage. You know, I think that's always kind of missing. But what I think they've both done here, you know, Opera North, working with South Asian arts on this reimagined Monteverdi, you know, obviously Leeds has a large South Asian population, a huge South Asian music scene, Welsh National Opera with this this new work, Blaze of Glory, about a mining community. You know, actually here are two companies embracing where they live on the main stage, not just in a, an education room somewhere. So I think for me, that's, you know, 
fantastic to see. The other thing I wanted to to mention that really stuck out to me the uh, the Macropolis affair at Welsh National Opera with Emma Bell and Nikki Spence, all star casting, both of whom we interviewed on Opercast last year when they were ENO. So go back and listen to to Emma and Nikki. But that but that sounds like a fantastic production as part of the Welsh season. So yeah, great things going on at, at both companies. Um, I also wanted to mention uh, the announcement of the Metropolitan Opera's 22-23 season. Sadly, we don't tend to see many of these in person, given it's uh, on the other side of the Atlantic, but a lot of them are on the screen. I mean, I'm I'm volunteering to go if you want to send me, David. (laughs) If if they're looking for reviewers, yeah, we can can do that. Um, Yeah, lots of them available on screen. and, And actually, it's just a really interesting, always an interesting season to look at because they are the people that do have the... The, the power and the money to go all out. So it's quite fun to see when you've got all the toys, what you what you can play with. Um, so in the 22-23 season, a couple of things I, I picked out, two new operas, a new Terence Blanchard opera, following the huge success of, of Fire Shut Up In My Bones that was on uh, earlier this season, a new Kevin Putz opera, many people will know Silent Night. Um, this is an adaptation of The Hours. A lot of people know the film uh, with, with Meryl Streep, it's got another all-star cast, Joyce Donato, Kelly O'Hara, and Rene Fleming, directed by Fairley McDermott. Uh, Alan Clayton is uh, playing Peter Grimes. Uh, Simon McBurney's Magic Flutes, many people know from ENO, is finally going to the Met. Um, and I said, lots of operas being streamed as part of their cinema season, including both of those new operas, Terence Blanchard's Champions and Kevin Putt's The Hours. I mean, Helen, if we're kind of looking at this season for... Uh, kind of a, a an idea of the, the the health of the the opera world where things are where things are going. What's kind of you know jumping up to you in this? Well, I think for when I looked through the list, it was so long that I I, I kept scrolling and I was kind of, kind of had forgotten quite how many there were. And maybe as well, it just shows because of lockdown when things lists were shorter, you could really actually see the lists along from all the companies. But with the Met, I just kept scrolling. It was kind of it was almost like, what opera are they not doing this season? Is how I felt. So I did feel it was very much a bold. We are, we are going to be back, and we're going big. Yeah, I, th- I think it's the most new productions they've done in about ten years, or or or, or, or something. Um, it is interesting what you're saying there, because I was looking earlier, uh, not for today's quiz, but maybe for another quiz, at um, number of opera performances in e- in each city. And actually, um, you know, London has does quite a lot more opera than New York. Um, New York is very Met heavy. We can be very jealous of of their season, as you say, with the ever never ending list of operas. But actually, you know, we London yeah, across the patch. We'd yeah. Have the set, yeah, yeah, which is which which is which is quite impressive. Um, Emma, was there anything you wanted to to touch on there? Um, I just think the cast for the hours is insane. <laughs> like what? Uh, yeah, I think it's brilliant. I'd love, love to. See, I mean, I'll, I'll probably go to a cinema screening. Yeah. But just. I, I've actually, I've seen two of those three women perform. I've seen Joyce, wow. Joyce, my personal friend Joyce, um, <laughs> uh, perform a couple of times at Covent Garden. And then actually I saw Kelly O'Hara in The King and I when it was in the West End. Oh, wow. Phenomenal. So I just think that's just going to be the hot ticket, isn't it? Yeah. And there's, there's, I can only think of Kelly O'Hara and maybe Nathan Gunn who can cross the opera and musical theatre worlds. I mean, amazing that Kelly O'Hara, as you say, you know, King and I, big Broadway shows and then, She's done Despina at the Met, you know, and she's, she's in this. Absolutely amazing. Um, it's mind-blowing, though, isn't it? In it? You know, for those kind of stars who can, you know, step between those worlds. It, to be in one world is is huge. Mm. To be in both of those worlds with, as well, they're, they're related, but we all know there's kind of quite different demands. Like 
honestly, they must be just superhumans, I think. Yeah, I say I can only think of those two off the top of my head. I'm sure there are others, but it is a very rarefied mm. company to, to, to keep. Mm. Um, so lots to look forward to next year, but also a lot to celebrate from the past year. Um, the Olivier Award nominations uh, were announced yesterday. And we are delighted to say that we have the inside scoop. We have an Olivier Awards panelist with us today, um, Emma. <laughs> there, is, there is no one better to talk us through these nominations so what have you so picked? I can finally talk about this I've had to keep the <laughs> secret for well not secret but not public um I've had the utmost it's been the such a pleasure and such a privilege um I've actually I've done it for two well in theory now for in total sorry for three years they asked me to I initially did the 2019 to 2020 season so that ran from February 2019 to February 2020 and then I was very uh, kindly asked to stay on and do another year and that year turned into a, a two-year season um so it's really lovely to, to talk about it now we had our meeting last week um and the way that it works is everyone see, we all see everything um it's a smallish panel um and you're encouraged to take notes throughout the year of kind of what you liked and and actually for opera it's a relatively in inverted commas easy job because there are only two awards up for uh, discussion. Whereas um, a friend of mine who was on the plays and musicals panel a couple of years ago, I think she had to hand keep like 20 awards in the back of her mind at all times. Um, so the two, the two opera awards are for best new opera. So that's you know, very easily defined. And then the slightly more nebulous uh, outstanding achievement. And a couple of years ago, for me, it felt very obvious that the outstanding achievement should be for the children who are in Noah's Flood, uh, the co-pro between Stratford East and e and And I was not alone in thinking that, um, and ultimately they then won, which was delightful. Um, this year, we've put together, a, I think, a really lovely nominations list for Outstanding Achievement. Um, in this, uh, the singer, Christine Rice, uh, the conductor and orchestra, so Peter Whelan and the Irish Rock Orchestra. And then I gunned quite hard for this, the set for HMS Pinafore, because it was a thing to behold and the sort of thing you can only really do on the Collie stage. And I thought it was just, it made, I mean, lots of fast, lots of things made that show, but the set was just like the crown jewel. Uh, so yes, yeah, so basically we all get in a room and we go through every production that we've seen and we talk about whether we think aspects of it are award worthy. And then from that, we get whittled down to nominations and then it's in a secret ballot from the nominations. So I don't know who's won, we will find out on the night. I know who's nominated, as does everyone, but I don't know who's won. And I get to go, so I'm very excited. Well, an ama yeah, amazing little insight there, thank you. So as you mentioned, Outstanding Achievement, Christine Rice, uh, Takis for the Sets and Costumes of HMS Pinafore, and then Pronunciation Police, please. This is Haydn's... Badgerzet. Thank you. Uh, mm -hmm. And then the best opera is Badgerzet, Vixen at E&O, uh, Jennifer at the Opera House and Theodora at the Opera House as well. Um, fairly recent production with uh, your friend Joyce uh, in, in the cast. <laughs> That's how I've seen her. It's the only way. How they the stars yeah, okay. This is where I play my. I have seen Joyce Dinato at the Met card, so I'm going to play that oh, card now. Right. I know I'll put it away for the next six months, but that's <laughs> that's that played. Um, so so very exciting. The nomination, uh, the awards are sometime soonish. April the tenth. April the tenth. Firmly <laughs> in the diary. 
Inked in. <laughs> Inked in. Uh, fantastic. So well done to the uh, nominees, and well done. I know it. I know it doesn't sound like um, uh, a difficult job, but you know, to you and your fellow panelists for actually kind of going to everything and uh, and all of that. I'm sure there are some things you had to sit through, thinking, <laughs> "My word, why do I have to be here?" A few, a few, and actually, there was something in this year. I won't name what it was, but the first half hour was so dull, and I brought a friend with me, and I honestly thought he would walk in the interval. <laughs> um, but then it genuinely picked up, and actually, in that first interval, we went, "Oh, it's picked up, hasn't it?" Because <laughs> that, first, yeah, the first half hour was deathly dull. <laughs> by the by, off record, you can tell us all about it. Yeah. This week. Uh, companies around the world have been celebrating International Women's Day. Um, I know it can seem a little bit kind of tokenistic, but I still think uh, we're at a point where we need to be celebrating and, and shouting about achievements in opera. Um, notably, the Royal Opera House, who staged seven new pop-up operas at St Pancras Station. Uh, lots of uh, publicity and whatnot for that, so that was, that was fantastic to see. Um, I asked you both, actually, to kind of commemorate this day and being two fabulous women working in opera yourselves um whether you've had a kind of a particular role model or, or role models in your in your career um same with you helen i'd i'd say in terms of of early on um probably not but it's probably because i came to opera almost through symphonies and being an instrumentalist um I'd say the three role models who have like, had such a massive impact on my operatic practice, um, partly through some of the programmes run by the RPS, the Royal Opera House, not have been, I'm going to name them all here, uh, Sean Edwards, Alice Farnham and Jessica Cottis, because I spent a lot of time working on opera um, and learned so much. And, and again, I'm going to say that's all relatively recently with the programmes that's run under the Yetta Park Young Artists Programme for Women Conductors. And I think there's a director stream as well, Emma, am I right? Um, yes, I think there is. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'm going to name those three who are massively, because, A, I'm seeing a woman, woman conducting opera, and talk about opera in, as a conductor, which I'd never, I'd seen symphonic conductors about, about two um, at, at a stage. So that's a big deal. So name check. Emma? I mean, so I've talked about this on the podcast before, uh, but the person who kind of gave me my start in opera um, is, or oh, was, uh, Christine Chibnall, who's the planning director at Opera North. Uh, she saw something in me and uh, kind of facilitated my first kind of few few jobs and then sent me out into the wide world. Uh, so I'm in, indebted to her. And as a role model, you know, she's she's a working mother in this industry, which in uh, recent years has become my role models are those who are out there and both men and women who are in this industry and also raising children i don't know how they're doing it because i don't know how i'm doing it but we all are and i think it's it's something that should be celebrated more uh so there's christine and then in terms of kind of directors that i admire from afar everything that i've seen that deborah warner has done i think is phenomenal her billy bud at the opera house a few years ago it's one of the best things I've ever seen. Um, she's currently rehearsing a Peter Grimes at the Opera House, which sadly I don't get a free ticket for anymore because I'm not on the Olivier panel, but I'm going to try very hard to go and see because I think whatever she touches, and she's so good at Britain. She's so, so good at Britain. Um, so, yeah, so I, I admire her. She's a role model from afar. Well, thank you for sharing. And I, and I dare say, not to embarrass you both, but I'm sure you'll both be uh, either currently or will be in the future role models to, to, to others. So, um, yeah, thank you for 
for, for sharing those. Um, it should be said that not everyone quite got the message right. You might have seen this Birmingham Conservatoire uh, celebrating International Women's Day with three new three new operas, uh, all written by men. They uh, they sort of slightly missed what yeah. the point of the day was. It's such uh, a shame. Like, I did actually have to double check that it wasn't April the first. <laughs> Same time. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's been some interesting chats there. Yeah, uh, we will go into that, but uh, it's it's um, it's astonishing these things. Someone doesn't doesn't realise these things, but uh, but hey ho. As I say, maybe in twenty years we won't need another an International Women's Day, but uh, for now. I, I just want to put this on this because every year, you know, I'm sure Emma gets this, I get asked to do various bits and bobs and it's great. But the thing I always want to say is that I'm looking forward to the time when I'm the last cohort of, of women who get getting asked these questions yeah. or getting asked about, oh, we're needing this. Um, we really, that's what we're working towards. So let's not lose sight of that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Now, in uh, musical musical chairs in the opera world, uh, we've had the announcement this week that uh, Anna Patlong is going to be the new chief executive of British Youth Opera, uh, and also the news that after 20 years, James Conway is stepping down from English touring opera. Um, he's overseen the, the company's tremendous work touring all across the country, presenting established and uh, lesser-known repertoire, and also overseen what must be one of the, the best education programs of any opera company kind of staggering work that they do at English touring opera so he will be sorely missed um Emma it's a it's a, a big job big shoes to fill but a, a really important one in the UK's kind of opera landscape at ETM oh massively so I think yeah what he's done for that company is um immeasurable really uh and yes the work that they do it fills a really important gap that the national companies. Uh, don't do. I assume they don't do it because English touring opera is so fabulous at it. Um, but it's kind of taking taking these works to all around the country, and also they've given so many singers their start. And I think it's I've I've yet to, I've yet to have the privilege of working for them. But I gathered that kind of the tour is intense, but you learn so much along the way. And it's a really kind of like it's it's a really good kind of notch to have on your CV uh, that you've done an you've done an ETO tour because yeah you've you've sung in any type of venue uh, yeah I think it's yeah whoever whoever takes it on yeah massive massive shoes to fill and I think he's going to enjoy a well earned rest. Helen, I was wondering actually, what, what is your well, what what's the what's the kind of nearest company that you get to see in 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 Lancashire? Is it ETO? Is it? The, the, nearest, the, the company that no, the company that comes the nearest is probably. I mean, I'm in in the heart of, of beautiful Lancashire. It's probably up north to the Lowry, and then English touring opera do come to. I think Lancaster. They were on the last tour, and, and Blackburn. I know they're going to with their um, and they're also involving local choirs as part of that as well. Um, so those are the news, but I think Emma's exactly right. There's even the big companies, just like the big orchestras, there's only so much budgets and funding will reach, and there's there's a real need for for those you know people to come to those areas. But as you say, the challenge of playing in all those different acoustics every night and all those different staging, um, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? And I know that's the job, but it doesn't make it any easier, does it? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's interesting you say that. Um... I remember when we talked to, to John Andrews a, a couple of years ago now, actually, the, the conductor, but talking about those those challenges of trying to do Dean Fergan out some Sarai in 
you know, 50 different acoustics and you pop on and you've got an hour to sort of get used to it and, and, and off you go. It's a, it's a challenge, but you know, they do, they do a, a phenomenal job and, you know, look forward to, to seeing who, who takes over and what the, uh, the future holds for, for English showing opera. You touched on it there, Helen, you know, we'd love to have lots more money to do, to do lots more, uh, things um but that's not always that is not always possible and um, the, the powers that be um have uh, made some decisions recently which is going to make for quite a big shake-up in the funding landscape of companies in the uk um london is going to be having a 15 percent overall cut in its support from arts council england which accounts for anywhere between sort of a quarter and, and half of the the income of, of the major opera companies. Um, but there is going to be a £75 million uplift to activity happening outside of the capital. Uh, so that means that organisations in London like the Royal Opera, English National Opera and the National Opera Studio um, face a, a potential reduction or even loss in their kind of core funding. Emma, you know, we'd obviously prefer lots of money for everyone. Um, but with the resources that there are, this uh, this levelling up agenda, as the government would like to call it, you know, is it something actually we should be we should be celebrating? Is it kind of nigh on time that London was sort of put in its place and we we finally started investing more in in the regions? Oh, I mean, I I'm conflicted because I'm from the regions. I'm from Nottingham, and then went to university in Leeds, and then lived in Leeds very happily in post grad life. And then I've been in London for the past seven years, so I don't really have a home anymore. Kind of from from all three of those places. Uh, what worries me about this is that it seems that we're kind of we're taking away to give to someone else. And that feels not brilliant. Um, whereas ideally this, this kind of money would just be invested straight into the North without having to cut what's happening in London. I imagine Covent Garden and Eno can probably take the hit. I don't know if National Opera Studio can, and they do really important work. It just so happens that they're in London, but they do really important, they do really important work. I, I mean, I think obviously more money for organisations out of London is, is always good because a lot of people live outside of London. And I think in the last couple of years, a lot of people have realised they don't want to live in London anymore and want to go elsewhere. If you assume that these people lived in London for the culture and are moving elsewhere, they won't probably want to see some culture. So definitely investing in culture outside of London is always, always a good thing. Uh, I just feel a bit icky about that we're taking away from existing culture. You could argue, though, that if London's got £21 per head against elsewhere that's £6, that's quite a big premium. That Wearing is true. Wearing accountant's hat. Um, <laughs> but I am with you. It would be lovely if there was more money. I mean, and I'm just going to say, I think this talks about £75 million, um, being given, you know, as, as Northerners were meant to doff our flat caps and be grateful. Yeah. But actually, that's a drop in the ocean. But at least it's a, a nod to the fact that the besides the actual benefit of the culture it, we know all the studies that show that if we've got improved cult, um, culture in the north it supports more meaningful sustainable jobs not just in the creative sector and actually there was a really important piece of work done by um, a northern think tank that was actually went in front of parliament about um, a month or so ago um, actually highlighting all this work and trying to kind of get more um, <sighs> more airtime and to keep the pressure on the government to really make a difference. Um, I feel quite strongly that, you know, we need sustainable arts jobs in this area anyway, in the north, because we all know, you know, 
everything being drawn to London for, for me just isn't good. But also, I am I'm passionate about about the north of England, and I just think we need it. But I am I, I, I totally agree. In an ideal world, it wouldn't come from London. But if I'm honest, I think London's had far too much money for too long. Being brutally honest, and also if you look at the argument, if you've got very rich people, is it right to get richer? But yeah. I don't know. That sounds a little bit. But I, yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to beat about the bush. I think. I think it's a start. But the other interesting thing is it'll be interesting to see how the latest funding portfolio comes out, and also maybe it will again prompt different ways of working from the London-based companies to be, and I know it's challenging and that brings different challenges around being green and, and sustainable, but, you know, I think we need to pressure ourselves. Remember during the pandemic, we were all talking about remote working, online, what was possible. Very quick, it can be too quick that we can lose some of those things we've discovered we can do and we yeah. don't need to all be in London. I mean, yeah. London is fine if you want to stick pins in your eyes, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think there are, there are a couple of things just to kind of say, or, or maybe kind of clarify here that, you know, we're, we're talking about organisations kind of core Arts Council funding, which is our main public funding tool. So it's not it's not everyone's, you know, sort of in, entire in, income that's that's potentially going. And as you say, companies like the Royal Opera, English National Opera, with quite a healthy pool of, of, of wealthy donors are probably better place to... Yeah. to kind of ride the storm than than others um i think um from my point of view you know i'm involved in a lot of these funding conversations there's there's a big draw that companies that do have money in london will have to do more outside they'll have to do at least 15 percent of their work uh, in what they call leveling up for culture places which are places in the uk that have less access to to, to culture so you'll be seeing the royal opera doing a lot more in different places of the, of the uk how that works we will see um but, you know, they're also asking organizations if, if they'll be willing to move. We've already seen companies, for example, like Mahogany Opera, who do work across the UK, but but now they're technically not based in London any, anymore. Um, so there'll be companies doing strategic things uh, like, like that as well. It's just kind of a bit of a, sh a shake up. And, um, you know, I think from my point of view, if you're someone like, for example, the National Opera Studio, you know, why do you have to be based in London? Why couldn't you be based somewhere else? Let's have more national organizations not based in the in the capital. So I hope things like this also give people a, a new way of thinking as well. You know, I'm sure here in Leeds or in Lancashire, we'd love some more national institutions because uh, I think we're big enough to um, to take them. I think we can, you know, rival London on, on any day of the week. Um, so let's see how, uh, how the shakeup goes. And so onto this month's interview, I sat down with a fantastic Samoan tenor, Amitai Patti, ahead of his UK opera debut at English National Opera in their production of Cozy Fantuti. So, Amitai, thanks so much for joining us for OperaCasts this month. Thank you for having me. Uh, so first things first, I mean, how does it feel to finally have made your, your Coliseum debut after those kind of COVID cancellations last week? Uh, it's, been, it's been a whirlwind, actually. I'm super, super proud to, to have made my debut here at the Coliseum and also in the UK for the very, very first time. Um, I've been looking forward to this for so long, especially after, you know, what's been a hectic two years in terms of COVID around the world. But um, it's good to finally be here and to be able to work with a, a company and a cast that's just absolutely amazing is a great way to get back into things. So I'm very excited. So you did sadly have the first first couple of shows cancelled last week. I mean, what do you do in that situation? Do you just kind of, you know, 
put your feet up and, and wait till you can kind of get going? Or are you back in the rehearsal room kind of refining things? What would what you kind of do in that odd period? Well, it, it, there's, there's definitely, it's, it's a tough sort of situation to navigate because, uh, you know, there are things that are out of your control. So, you know, we, we can't go back into the rehearsal room, of course. But uh, during that time, I made the most of it by going over music again, making sure that I uh, had the staging mapped out in my head. And uh, so that basically, as soon as we got back into the, into the room itself, everything would be as if nothing had ever happened. So, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of just being proactive, making sure that you're, uh, you're on the ball so that uh, once the rehearsals resumed, you were just straight back to normal. Like, <laughs> there was no COVID at all. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk a bit more about, about Cozy later, but I'd like to kind of start by having a chat about your musical kind of upbringing. Um, sure. So you were, you were born in New Zealand, I understand, um, your, your parents came over from Samoa kind of shortly before you were you were born. Um, I mean, what what do you think that kind of Samoan heritage is? What role has it played in your your career or, or your music? What's the the influence been there? I would have to say that it's played the biggest role in my musical upbringing because uh, in the Samoan culture, everything is basically to do with music. Uh, I think uh, as as we as we grow up as kids we're sort of introduced to music at a very young age, mostly because a lot of our stories and a lot of our legends are spread through word and music. Uh, and our time at church as well as, as young kids, we're basically immersed into the, into the choral scene from a very young age. So I've, I've been surrounded by music since I was, basically since I was born. Uh, my dad has been a huge musical influence throughout my life because he's, He's always been there with the guitar, sort of just, you know, singing to us as kids and uh, making sure that we ended up performing with him uh, at one point. But uh, also my grandfather, my, my mother's dad, who, uh, who I'm, thankfully, I am named after. He was also a very prominent musician as well back in his time. So, you know, music is definitely in the blood, but my culture does have a huge, huge role to play. And uh, I'm just, you know, I'm very grateful for it because I never thought that I could make a career out of music. So, and if I'm to be completely honest, my parents were very nervous. <laughs> when I told them I wanted to pursue music, they were very nervous. Uh, but now they've got two, they've got two of their sons, well, their only sons, both of them, uh, who are now pursuing music overseas. So, you know, I, I owe everything to my culture and I, you know, will definitely wear my culture proud wherever I perform in the world. Well, you, you mentioned there you've got a, a brother who's also very musical, you know, a, a professional musician. Um, and you're a very musical family as your kind of astonishing success with, with Sole Mio kind of shows. <laughs> um, I mean, for, for listeners who aren't aware <laughs> of it, can you tell us a little bit about um, the group and kind of how it, how it came about? So Sole Mio was, jeez, uh, this is going back to about 2011. My brother was, uh, he was scouted to come and study at the Wales International Academy of Music uh, in Cardiff. And so for us to sort of, we, we were actually, during that time, we were scouted as well, but he, he did the first year of course, and they had only found out about myself and our cousin Moses uh, shortly afterwards. So when we were invited to attend the academy as well, we thought, you know, what an opportunity. We, we're not going to pass this up at all. Uh, the only problem was, is that we needed the funds to do it. 
And so uh, during a performance at the Wanganui Opera School back in New Zealand, my brother was the guest performer. And he, <laughs> during one of, his, uh, one of his arias, he came backstage and he looked at us and he said, guys, I, I had a pretty big night last night, so I might need a bit of help. Uh, and, you know, uh, Moses and I, we kind of just sprung into action. We grabbed the guitar and we just thought, okay, why don't we just turn this into a trio? And uh, so we did. We came out and we performed Osole uh, Mio, the famous Neapolitan song. And uh, to our surprise, the, uh, the audience went crazy. And it wasn't until somebody had actually piped up at the, at the end of the performance and said, you guys should form a trio. And we just laughed. <laughs> we, thought, we thought it was the funniest thing in the world. But um, from that point, basically, we just we said, you know, this could actually be a really good way for us to raise funds to go to Cardiff together. So uh, we decided to pursue it. And um, thankfully, and, and, you know, for I'm super grateful for the opportunities that have uh, come our way. Uh, we had a, uh, a scout from Universal Music New Zealand that was in one of the uh, shows that we did. And so from that point, they decided to take us on professionally. And here we are now, you know, I think, is it about 10, almost 10 years later, and we're still going strong. So I, yeah, I'm very grateful for, for all the opportunities so far, and I hope it just keeps going. I mean, now now that your your opera diary is 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 filling up a, a great deal, and you know your 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 brother and cousin were kind of very busy as well. I mean, what what do you kind of hope the the future is for the for the group? We well, the the good thing is that we have sort of uh, our schedules mapped out, thankfully, by our um, management agency, and uh, so we can see that there are a few gaps in the schedules where we can try and slot things in uh, for for or so. Uh, it's just a matter of whether or not those schedules will line up. But, um, you know, we will do our best to make sure that they do. And if they do, then we'll try and make the most of that time as well. So, uh, but they know for sure, our management for Sorting Meal back in New Zealand, they know for sure that our operatic careers are the priority right now. So we will try to balance the two. And if we can, then we definitely will. Yeah. I mean, you, you kind of mentioned that you've had huge success with the group. You performed in, in front of some huge audiences, um, you know, probably bigger than anything you'll, you'll kind of get in an opera house. I mean, what is the difference kind of being on stage in that group and being on stage in an opera? I think, you know, particularly with that relationship to the, to the audience, you know, kind of, are they very similar or are they kind of very different sort of experiences? They are actually quite similar. I would say that, um, we get a lot of interaction from different audiences, of course. Uh, in terms of the audience that we have here for Cozy at the at the Coliseum, they're very interactive. They they love to respond. They're very receptive, uh, and so it's not too different from what we do uh, in Solimio because of all the contemporary music. People love to chime in. They love to sing along as well, and we encourage it. We we make sure that everybody feels comfortable and uh, what they see happen on stage is exactly how they want to feel. So uh, keeping the vibe very, very free, very sort of uh, just uh, easy going, I think it gets the audience uh, involved and gets them, it allows them to interact. So we try to keep sort of the, uh, the interaction with the audience exactly the same in both, in both sort of uh, genres, so to speak. Uh, but in saying that, the, the major differences for me, which I which I would love to keep going for the two for the two uh, styles of music, 
is that um, I love the discipline that comes with the operatic uh, side of singing. Uh, the fact that we have things and we, we know things that we have to put in place for the performance, you know, I, I like that spirit. So, uh, whereas Soli Mio is very, it's, it's almost a refresher. We, we get to just be ourselves on stage. We get to play around, just have a laugh. Um, people think that the entire show is scripted and it's not. It's basically off the cuff. We just vibe off of each other and uh, we just try and have as much fun as possible. So going from one to the other is super refreshing. It just keeps things uh, really, really, really fresh for us. And uh, I think it's why we enjoy it so much as well. Well, it's interesting what you're saying there about kind of keeping things refreshed, because I know you've got a lot of musical interests. I know you've done some uh, stint as a hip hop DJ, I understand, back in, um, but back in New Zealand. Um, I mean, did you kind of think that variety is, is important to you, you know, not just being purely on, on opera, it's kind of having a wider interest, actually something that kind of keeps you, keeps you sane almost? I, I think so. And yes, I, I like how you put it just in. Uh, it definitely keeps me sane because I feel like if I get stuck in, in one thing, I get bored very easily, uh, very quickly as well. So the fact that uh, things are constantly changing, uh, it just it makes me feel, it makes me happy. And I think that's what we all sort of look for when it, when it comes to wanting to pursue something. We want to find something that keeps us happy every single day. And um, yeah, I couldn't be happier doing what I'm doing right now. So I think, I think we've managed to find something that works. And uh, as a group and as an individual, as a soloist, I, I don't think I would change anything. You know, I think uh, so long as I can find inspiration from different uh, genres of music, I think that's what keeps me creative and that's what keeps the ideas coming in. So if anything, it makes me better as a performer, I think. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned before, I mean, Cozy is your UK stage debut, but you did spend some time in, in, in Cardiff study, studying there. Yes. What, what do you kind of remember from your time in, in Wales? What do you kind of take away from, from that time? Uh, a lot of drinking. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of beer. Uh, Samoa versus, you know, kind of Wales <laughs> and Samoa coming together. It's a, you know, it's a toxic oh, mix. Speaking of, I, I mean, I'm a huge rugby fan, of course, coming from New Zealand. And I love the fact, this is, this is what I really love about Wales, is the fact that uh, they're very similar to New Zealanders. Uh, they, love, they love rugby. They love drinking and they love to sing. And so, uh, you know, the academy itself was amazing. Uh, huge props to Dennis O'Neill for taking us on and for, uh, for teaching us for those years. Uh, he's an amazing tutor and, you know, I owe a lot of uh, my current technique to him. So uh, I hope I get to see him at some point. But um, speaking of Samoa and Wales, we were actually there at the, uh, the then Millennium, uh, Millennium Stadium and uh, I think Samoa was actually playing Wales. And the best thing about it is that not only did we win, but uh, they were very, very accommodating, the, uh, the fans. They, you know, during the game, it's all about sort of just like, you know, whoever comes out on top. But uh, as soon as they had realized that we had won the game, they were so lovely. They just said, you know, you guys played super well. And uh, it kind of made us feel, because we were basically the only supporters there for Samoa, uh, we were it made us feel really warm. And I, and I realized, you know, I do feel like I'm at home. So, you know, I really do miss those, uh, those days in Cardiff and hopefully at some point I get to go back and, and visit the old stomping ground. So, yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, good. Yeah, I th- you, you might get a very different atmosphere in a football ground, maybe. I think rugby yeah. fans are a bit more accommodating. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, Wales then led you to the US where you, you, you studied some more and then, you know, kind of finally had your European debut and then then COVID uh, came along. Yes. Um, I mean, how did you kind of keep yourself kind of motivated and I suppose in kind of good voice during that time? Because I know you spent the, the first part of COVID in New Zealand, which obviously was was kind of very strict with kind of keeping it in under wraps you know how how did you kind of keep yourself you know engaged and and, and motivated during that time well thankfully uh because we have solimir which is uh dominantly in uh in new zealand uh during that time when i had to go back home i basically spent most of my time planning and performing for the group uh which is which is a great thing because you know not only do we keep ourselves uh, healthy vocally but it keeps the creativity going as well um, and being able to perform at home where COVID wasn't really running rampant at all, you know, we, we were still able to perform. It was, uh, it was a good thing. It kept us, uh, very, very sane, but also very, uh, very productive. So during, yeah, during that time, it was just basically making sure that we had as many things to do as possible just to keep ourselves uh, busy but also it kept me sort of thinking about what my next operatic uh, production would be. And so I wanted to stay on top of those things as well and had, a, had all the music planned and had my coachings and rehearsals all sort of sorted so that as soon as I hit the stage again, I'd be ready. So, um, yeah, that was basically it. Just, just making sure that uh, I stayed on top of all the music, but also making the most of that time with my family as well. So mm-hmm. they... They definitely keep me grounded. They keep us grounded. And, um, you know, it's especially through all the tough times, you can definitely rely on your family to keep yeah. you going. I mean, another one of those COVID projects that I mentioned earlier was was the DJing. Um, I mean, <laughs> I, I would just love to hear a little bit more about, about that. And I suppose that, again, it's, it's more of that kind of idea that you just seem to quite like doing a lot of different things to kind of keep you interested. Um, yeah. yeah. So what is it about the DJing? You know, kind of what do you get up to? What, what did you kind of get out of that? Well, it was mostly, if I'm to be completely honest, it was mostly my brother who did uh, a lot of the hip hop DJing. Uh, he used to he used to DJ and produce for uh, a school out in South Auckland. And um, you know, we've always been interested. We we were actually brought up with uh, a lot of hip hop and R and B. So uh, classical music didn't actually enter our lives until uh, you know into our late teens. And um, but before that, we were so immersed in hip-hop and R&B that uh, that was basically the only thing that we knew, uh, especially with uh, our upbringing in South Auckland and with our two older sisters who kind of, uh, you know, they, they were interested in that sort of music. And because we were super young at the time, we knew nothing else because we only listened to what they played. Uh, but in saying that too, um, you know, that, that sort of music keeps us, it definitely, it definitely does keep us creative because, you know, we we only listen to it for for beats and lyrics and things like that. But there's so much else that goes on within the music, and we we didn't really actually realize that until we got a bit older. So it definitely is something that uh, gets us thinking, and, and like I said, keeps us creative as well. But um, yeah, it's always going to be there. I think that uh, hip hop, especially, is always going to be at the core of uh, sort of my musical creativity. I think. <laughs> <laughs> but it plays a huge part, yeah. 
Um, so kind of going into the, the operatic repertoire side of things then, um, you've done a lot of different stuff recently. I was, I was looking at you know, Handel, Mozart, Donizetti, Puccini, the Jake Heggie. Um, I mean, do, do you kind of see yourself specializing at some point in the, the kind of the coming years or do you like, you know, everything from Handel to, to contemporary? Um, I do. I mean, I, I will at some point specialize in something, but um, at the moment I'm very, very picky with what I sing. Uh, speaking of the handle, I'm, <laughs> I mean, some people listening to this might not agree with me, but I'm, I'm not too much of a fan of, of handles music because mostly because I can't sing the stuff. Uh, <laughs> it's beautiful. It's beautifully written and it's amazing to listen to, but as a performer, I feel like, uh, my voice is sort of leaning to a different, uh, a different composer's style of music. Um, so being able to sing my first handled role was a huge challenge. Um, I had to do a lot of, uh, a lot of searching, a lot of research actually for, for my own particular voice and just try to sort of adapt to the writing and the style of the music. Uh, whereas I fit, I feel like I fit a whole lot more within sort of the bel canto style repertoire where there are longer lines, longer phrases and um, some things that just aren't as heavy. Like uh, I'll try and stay away from some Puccini and, and a few Verdi roles as well, just for now, just to make sure that, uh, you know, I don't overdo anything, don't blow myself out before, before that time comes. Uh, but uh, the only reason I know that is because I've had good teachers who, who listen and make sure that the voice works and they don't want you to push anything. They don't want you to, to force yourself into anything that you're uncomfortable with and basically just sing naturally. So I'll be very choosy with my <laughs> repertoire right now. And um, thankfully, I have a manager who agrees. So, yeah. yeah, he just says, if you don't feel right, if it, if it feels uncomfortable for you, you tell me and I'll sort it out. So I'm very grateful. So how, how does how does Fernando in, in your character in Cozy Fantuti fit into that kind of uh, outlook? He is difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna say this outright. It's just it's not an easy role. Uh, the last time I sang this was actually back in 2016 for the Merrilla Opera Program in San Francisco, and um, even then I thought I don't know why they cast me for this because this is so difficult. Um, but I, you know, asked my brother and my sisters. I'm always up for a challenge. And uh, I decided to take it on. And when I was told that I was going to be cast for uh, Ferrando here at the Coliseum, I thought, that's, that's great. You know, let's do it. I, I haven't sung in the UK before. Why not? This would be a great debut. Um, but then as I started to learn the role again, I just, I realized uh, all those memories came flooding back. And I just thought, how am I going to get through this? <laughs> Um, so, you know, I've had, I've had about six, six years to try and get this sort of, uh, thinking under control. And I think I've, I've managed to sort it. So, uh, the role itself, yes, it might be difficult, but, uh, it's definitely doable. And I think that, uh, for any young, uh, young singers out there who are thinking of, uh, roles to perform, young tenors, especially this one is definitely up there to, to grab hold of. Hmm. I mean, it's an opera of quite sort of morally challenging characters, you, you might say. But I think people often say kind of Ferrando is is 
maybe the most sympathetic character, if not quite the hero, the most sympathetic. I mean, is that something that you would agree with? Yes, and um, <laughs> because because I like things that you know that that change quite often, and you know uh, it keeps sort of like the thinking fresh. I like to try and uh, to change the character a little bit as as well. Um, I know that he's very sympathetic, he's very empathetic as well. Uh, but you know, for me, I try to make him uh, more of a more of an understanding character, but more of a uh, like he has a firm belief in something. Uh, he he has a he has a really good understanding of the situation. He's not as I guess not as timid as people would think he is. Uh, but for me personally, I think he knows exactly what he's doing, and he tries his best to to win this bet. Uh, so that you know the outcome sort of leans in his favor, and I think um, I think it comes to uh, with with a lot of Mozart's uh, characters, especially uh, the tenor roles. Usually, you know they they get uh, the sort of softer side of things. They get to, they have to be played as these these guys who are very you know very loving and very you know yes darling i'll do that and all that kind of stuff um but i i like to turn them into these these guys who know exactly what they want so um during this opera i try my best to to make that come across but um at the end of the day he's a tenor and he you know he'll try and get the girl so <laughs> <laughs> so he has to he has to be very loving yeah. As a tenor, it's just it's your lot in life, basically, isn't it? You know, the, the, the romantic sap half the time. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's it's an opera that can be quite. It is quite silly and ridiculous at times with all the the, the disguises and all that sort of thing. Um, I mean, is that something this this production and you embrace, or are there kind of some deeper meanings in there that that you're hoping to to uncover? I mean, I I I would like to uncover some deeper meanings for sure. I think. Um, you know the fact that the opera is still being performed nowadays uh, with with the uh, with the original message intact. I think uh, you know that's sort of a testament to the music itself. I think uh, you know there are still some messages that we can take away from the production, uh, not only the original ones, which uh, you know wouldn't really apply to anything nowadays, but um, you know for for the uh, for the current message that we spread. Uh, during this particular performance, it's, you know, it's all about just being, being able to express yourself and just, um, you know, not take life so seriously, which is, I think what, what Mozart wanted to tell people with this uh, production originally. So um, if anything, yeah, I, I think with the current state of the world, we can, we can all do with a little bit of uh, lightheartedness and just uh, not thinking so seriously about things and just, try and live happy lives basically yeah yeah well i think that's a that's a great message to end on um amitai thanks so much <laughs> enjoy your final performances and your time here in london we hope you'll be uh, you'll be back with us again in the uk soon thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure So thank you very much to Amitai and English National Opera for setting up that interview. Now, The Terrible War 
in Ukraine has reached international opera stages. Anna Netrebko, by refusing to speak out against the war, was originally dropped by houses, including the Metropolitan Opera, and has since decided to take an indefinite break from all work. Whilst the conductor Valery Gergiev has similarly been removed from international programs for his relationship with Vladimir Putin. Now, Emma, the war in Ukraine has, has, has deeply affected all of us, and it's very difficult, I think, to consider working with and enjoying artists on stage who are either uh, apologists or, or are not kind of taking a, a stand against it. Um, what do you think artists' responsibility in, in situations like this should be? I mean, someone like Natrebko, for you know, for example, you know, is it? Should we be expecting these artists to be making a stand? I mean, I think the level she is at, I I do expect her to say something. I think, especially with both her and with Gergiev, because they are they have they have shown support in the past. That's the thing, mm. and then not to then not say anything. Now, I understand the decisions that have been made because because if we know that they are that they sympathise with Putin, then that's not really who we want, you know, that's not who we want to enjoy, enjoy culture from um, in our very kind of lovely Western bubble that we live in. It's always been a complex relationship, isn't it? If you, if we look at, you know, so many composers and their, their relationship with the authorities. And I think obviously if we think about Russia in particular, there's so many complicated stories of Shostakovich and how how that really had such a direct line into how he wrote and how he lived mm. his life. Um, and I think it ultimately will come, have to come down, I'm guessing, to how that artist and that of any kind, how their moral compass and their principles ultimately manifest themselves. And I think as people who are um, engaging with those artists, you then bring your own set of moral principles and values to how you're going to experience what they can give you. And I think if your moral and your principles feel strongly that someone's being complicit, then you will feel um, that conflicted to enjoy, or, or not enjoy is not the right word, but experience that emotion with them. So I, it's always a difficult one and we also know if we look at just one really quick one you know Wagner and the, the really difficult um his difficult views and and but then the music it's something that's it's always been a point of debate the, the other side to it I guess as well is there's been um some pianists have been uh banned haven't they from taking part in a competition in Ireland and there's a lot of a backlash. But then if we look at the moment outside of the arts, um, you know, the Russians haven't been allowed to take part in the Paralympics. They're now not allowed to take part in, in any football. You know, it, it's, you know, can the arts, should the arts be so arrogant that we can put that, put other, put those artists' views aside when, when other decisions are being made across across our the way we interact as human beings, across all the aspects of our life. And I think that thinking aloud, I think it's it wouldn't be good that we sit sit on a pedestal that we should just say, well they're an artist who can do what they want. I, I that doesn't sit right with me. 
Mm. I think it ultimately will boil down to people's own moral principles that they bring that meet with what is being, uh, what an artist is doing. Yeah, I mean, you you brought it up there, Helen. That so you mentioned the Dublin piano competition. So so what they've done is they've said that they're they're not welcoming any Russian artists, you know, blanketly to 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 come and take part, which is is not really being done across kind of the, the classical sector. Um, but again, as you mentioned there, you know, we've got companies pulling out of Russia. We know that's going to impact norm, normal Russians um, because what we need to do is is is, is put uh, put pressure on them to 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 try and kind of speak out against it. So I mean. I, Again, it's it's so difficult to to know, but you know, can, maybe we can see a point at which that becomes more more commonplace as we just try and put as much pressure on Russia as possible. If we stop accepting Russian artists, it kind of potentially just adds to the pressure that we can we can put on. Well, I mean, as we see, you know, I think the uh, performances by Russian orchestras, Russian opera companies are are being cancelled, which I think, you know, when when people are operating under the the Russian name. I think we can see a very clear rationale for 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 doing that. When it's when it's Russian artists, it becomes much more difficult. Yeah, and, and also with those other, uh, as you say, kind of the commercial aspects, there is a commercial and very hard uh, economic impact that can be seen in that in terms of you know currency and, and real issues. Whereas when you come down to individuals, mm. that's a, another different case. And then where do you draw the line? One of those days when, you, you know, there must be some, if you're having to make these decisions, really, tr- really difficult. Just finish this chat by obviously saying that I think opera is, uh, it makes you realise how sort of trivial it is at, uh, when, when, when things like, like, like this are happening. But um, that's our job on OperaCast to, uh, uh, to, to, to cover these things on the opera stages. Um, to, to stick with slightly um, tricky themes, um, COVID-related cancellations uh, keep coming in. Uh, we mentioned earlier our, our guest this month, Amitai Patti. His uh, his royal debut at ENO has been has been cancelled the first couple of shows because of uh, coronavirus. Emma, we are now in a situation, however, where legally you can go about your daily business even if you have um, COVID. I mean, what what you've been working in in with, with with Scottish? I mean, what do you kind of sense the mood is like among the industry at the moment? People still seem very keen to be isolating and cancelling if if necessary but surely there will come a point in the not too distant future where we get on with it so i uh, yeah i have been at scottish it feels now like another world because we um well a it was scotland right so they they were they were slightly yeah. hotter than my rules anyway um and you know i wore a mask every day for six weeks um and we also we had to test every morning before we went into rehearsal uh and and that felt that gave definitely gave me the confidence to kind of go in and know that everyone else had done exactly the same thing and that we wouldn't be there. But that was in January and the rules have changed since then. So, I mean, I, I think I'm hoping we are getting to the tipping point. I think the vaccine is, is doing its thing, which is what we all hoped it would do. Uh, but I think opera is such a niche art form and that any kind of bug, especially kind of a coldy, fluey bug, for a singer, COVID or not COVID, is is the worst thing in the world because it affects the sound they make and that's that's their, that's their instrument. So I think I probably opera more than many, maybe other art forms. Um, I think we'll probably hold on to uh, these kind of, uh, not rules, these um, portions. It's protocols, isn't it? Protocols, yeah. We've been through every company has had their own protocols and we're still in that period, I think, I think until it's, 
until until the transmissibility changes or it's just so rampant yeah so i mean i think i think people are still being cautious and rightly so because and then you know to take take it to a slightly lighter side um the olivier's uh there's not going to be an after party this year uh, because to quote um, the head of the Olivier's, he thought, imagine if we were the super spreader event that shut down the West End for like, you know, weeks on end. So they just thought, you know, there's just not, let's do the awards because everyone wants the awards, but there's just no, let's not even risk it. And then shows that I've worked on, so Dream at Scottish and elsewhere, you know, there's not been, there's not been opening night parties, there's not been closing night parties. It's just everyone's gone, you know, we'll here to do the show. And then if you want to socialise afterwards, that's fine, but let's not do it. Yeah, officially under the company name, everyone kind of take responsibility for themselves, and let's see how we do. I mean, I, th- I think this is a fascinating question because, uh, as I say, I, I, there, there will be a point at which somebody has coronavirus, they come into work, and we just we we just kind of keep going. You know, I don't think this COVID cancellations are not going to keep keep going. Um, I mean, Helen, what would put you on the spot? What would you feel if you were, you know, playing in an orchestra and the person next to you? had COVID, what would your, right now, what would your kind of feeling be, given that it, that is legally permissible? I, I wouldn't be happy. <laughs> but but the, pro- the problem we've got is at the moment, unless there's a protocol in to test, that could, no one is now going to really know because we're not, we're in the point when we were testing when it was, a cho- you know, when we had to. Now it's a choice, that's where it gets difficult. And I know that it's still if you if you're feeling ill, you should be testing. Um, I, in fact, someone I know, um, you know, it's still happening. Is it that people are, are, are testing because the poor, which is right? But then, in three months' time, how much are people going to even be doing that? Yeah, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't be happy, but I'm I'm assuming that they knew and came in with COVID. That's that's the other thing because the tests are now chargeable unless they're going to be provided by companies aren't they you see yeah. so we're getting to tricky territory to be honest i'm still at the point when i know there's something super important coming on up i i spent the last between january and february i mean i'm touching lots of wood because someone i know was talking about this the other weekend and they've, they've got it is i just feel i've i've dodged it so far and in general if i know there's something really important coming up i'll still be um look it's nothing to do with you but i'm just keeping my distance because i'm trying not to get covid it's nothing personal. Mm. Um, that's what I do, what I'm doing, and then I have periods where I've got nothing that's dropped dead, and I'll kind of I might I might like be able out to... on the town. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I don't. Well, it's a strange one, isn't it? Because also I found myself in situations with sometimes, you know, probably in, in a week I might see maybe even some weeks something ridiculous like 300 different people dealing with different big orchestras and groups mm-hmm. and yeah it's a weird weird feeling it's we're still not through it yet are we because we're still having these de- debates about oh what should i do or mm-hmm. someone throwing you i've got what you know it's still gray isn't it mm-hmm. yeah uh, we said at the start of this uh this recording that it kind of looks as though we're coming out of it but as you said people still being very cautious companies still cancelling um We'll, we'll keep on top of what people are doing because I say, I'm just interested at where that tipping point comes where um, things don't get cancelled anymore. And we'll, we'll see when that, when that happens. To finish off our, our news roundup again, let's, uh, let's increase the levity. Uh, 
Pointless host Richard Osman uh, caused a little bit of a stir on Twitter this week. Uh, he said, is there any longer more fruitless period of time than having to sit through the opera questions on University Challenge? Um, let's ignore whether that's a criticism of opera or not. Um, Emma and Helen, um, I asked you to answer the question, is there any longer more fruitless period of time than... Uh, Emma, I'll go with you first. Um, I'm going to say um, engaging in a Twitter spat, just like everyone is back <laughs> away. <laughs> have, you, have you been in Twitter spats then, Emma? No, I've watched oh. them from afar. Oh, right. Oh. It's too much energy. Like, we could be doing, like, guys, like, go outside, read a book. It's all fine. Yeah. Well, that's a very good answer. A, a, a former panellist of this podcast, Chris Pelley, the conductor, is a big fan of a Twitter spat. Um, yes, he's tried to get me into a few, and I have yeah. that away. <laughs> big, big fan. That is a very good point. I like, I like that answer. Um, uh, Helen, what is the uh, I, I thought about this, more period of time? After like a late night concert rehearsal, driving back, and I'm like, yeah, it's going to be a really great journey. It's late. It's quiet. I'm not speeding, of course. <laughs> um, it's going to be quiet roads. It's like 12, 1 a.m. And then I'm sitting in a traffic jam at 1 in the morning because there's some road works. Or worse still, I'm being diverted around like the B4, whatever, in the wilds of somewhere or other. And I know that home is, is like no distance, but I'm being diverted. And that... <sighs> <laughs> I very cross. I know I shouldn't do it. I've been on the speed awareness course. I shouldn't get cross. <laughs> but 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 yes, that's the one that really gets me. Totally fruitless. Yeah. Well, I hope we can all agree that actually we quite enjoy the upper questions on University Challenge um, and hope we get them right. <laughs> um, because if we don't, then that's that's a very sad day. Um, <laughs> To finish off this month then, a quick roundup of the opera that you can catch on TV, radio and film in March. Uh, Jennifer Saunders, the actress, English National Opera and Classic FM have joined up for a new series on the radio station called From Couch to Opera House, introducing listeners to the world of opera in seven episodes. Um, I must say, my dad actually phoned me up, which is, I, he doesn't really, it's my mum always phones, and dad phoned me up um, and to tell me that he'd been listening to this. And, and my dad, he likes opera, but I wouldn't say he always loves all of it. And he really enjoyed it. So, yeah, it was really great. If you'd heard something, it told you a little bit more. And in his his words, it had none of the boring bits and he stayed with it. So that's high praise from my dad. Fantastic. Well, I think that's exactly what it's set up there to, to, to do, isn't it? Um, you know, because I think even Classic FM listeners, I don't think we can assume our opera goers. In that's fact, exactly. The mo most people probably probably aren't. Um, and I say this on every podcast, but I think yet more great work from English National Opera, yeah. getting opera to different people, doing different things. Uh, you might have seen this month they had Holly Willoughby's latest perfume launch at the Coliseum. She did a little behind the scenes video. I'm all for that sort of thing. I think it's. Have they done think a TikTok as well? Or am I dreaming that? Have they done a TikTok thing? They did, they did a TikTok, TikTok, TikTok opera. opera. Yeah. That's it, yeah. Which I didn't see because I'm not young enough to be on TikTok. <laughs> because I'm not 12. So um, I, miss, I miss that one. Um, if you fancy a trip to the cinema, the Royal Opera's Rigoletto and the Metropolitan Opera's Ariadne, Alf Naxos and Don Carlos are on the big screen later this month. Don Carlos has been receiving rave reviews 
uh, for, for Jamie Barton's performance in that. So uh, do pop along to the cinema to catch that. Emma, this month I've asked you, please, for your hidden gem. And I think it's something that helps us celebrate International Women's Day a little bit more. Yes. So uh, this is a one-act opera called... I'm going to get this wrong. Uh, Fête Galante, it's French, apologies to all the French speakers out there, um, by Ethel Smythe, who is coming up at Glyndebourne uh, with The Wreckers, which I don't know, but I gather people that know it love it. Yeah. Uh, so she wrote this in 1923. Uh, she's a fascinating woman, absolutely fascinating. I need to read more about her. Um, she was a suffragette and was like big mates with Emily Pankhurst and then new Virginia Woolf and new very kind of that, that kind of Bloomsbury group knew all of them. And uh, I'd already picked this as the hidden gem. And then yesterday I saw a statue of her has just been unveiled in Woking, which, cause she's from Woking originally. So it all feels very kind of all, all of one, all of one world. So I came across this um, cause I've just done a opera scenes project at Leeds Conservatoire, which Helen came to see, which was lovely. Um, and I, I didn't pick the music for the project. I was kind of presented with a, a script and the pieces of music and I listened to all of them and thought, yep, yeah, this, this will all work. And this, and uh, there was a piece from Fate Gallant and I was like, what is this? This is lovely. So it's based on a short story that actually was dedicated to Ethel Smythe. So I'm not surprised that she then uh, turned it into an opera about a decade later. And it's a, it's sort of a bit like Pagliacci in that it's a tragic comedy. Uh, it's got roots in uh, Commedia dell'arte. And basically there's a masked ball. Uh, someone gets oh, the wrong mistaken identity and it ends, ends tragically. There's a love triangle and the wrong person gets accused. It's about an hour long, but the music is so beautiful. It's kind of really lovely, kind of, yeah, uh, 1920s, uh, really lush kind of sound, bits of Ravel sort of in there as well. Um, I really want to do it. So if anyone, <laughs> anyone runs an opera company, I would like to do it. that are not very well known to the public. So that again, you know, undiscovered gems that aren't well known to the public. I don't know any other companies like that. I I don't think there are any companies that do that. No, no, I don't know who. Maybe there's a niche there, Dave. <laughs> Maybe. Well, thank you, Emma. It sounds fantastic. Let's listen to a little bit of Ethel Smythe's Fate Gallant. And to finish off then with the opera quiz, uh, we're going to go back to an old favourite. I'm going to read out the uh, <laughs> cast to an opera starting from arguably the smallest role going up to the largest role. Um, uh -huh. To make it easier for you guys, all of the five operas I've got here we have mentioned today. Oh, no. um, so I don't know how many operas we've talked about today, about... 30 probably so it's one of those a couple of these we have had on OperaCast before but i'm assuming you haven't listened to all of the previous OperaCast quizzes in uh preparation for today um actually that's a really good idea for future now <laughs> I, don't, I don't usually repeat but on this occasion i don't think we've had them for about two years so i think that's acceptable um so i'm going to read out the roles smallest to largest if you think you know what it is 
shout out. Uh, so we'll start off with opera number one. Servants. Echo, Dryad, and Nyad. The Majordomo. Yeah, no, it's pretty, I can't even say it. An officer, a lackey, a wig maker, the dancing master. Oh, yeah. Oh, go on. No, you were first. The Ariadne of Nexus. Ariadne of Nexus, yes. Dancing master really gives it away. We were then going to have the composer, yeah. <laughs> Triple Dino, Zerbinetta, the tenor prima donna. Uh, excellent. Um, next one, chorus. Funnily enough. The mayor, the mayor's wife. Oh, I'm going to say Macropolis. No, I was going to go for. Can I, I can have another answer? I've said it too soon, so I'll lose my chance. You can have one more answer, and then I'm going to cut you out. Um, Yanufa. It is very good. As soon as you say mayor and mayor's wife, you're thinking, you're thinking Russian, aren't you? Thinking, I was, I was straight away, I have to admit, thinking Anna Czech. Yeah. But well, I yeah. I yeah, but I, I can relax now because I've got one. Yeah, and it helps It helps that you've probably got your opera cast running orders in front of you, so you've got a list of opera. No, but... I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm just going to say the phone is, is not being used. Just to, just uh, we, we would have then had Karol Kostarek, uh, Koshalnika, Steva, Laka, and Genufa. So here we are. Uh, fingers on buzzers, please. Chorus. Mrs. Cripps. Cousin Hebe. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I know <laughs> Sorry. Uh, HMS Pinafore. It is. I had no idea that Little Buttercup was called Mrs. Cripps. Yeah, she is, but no one calls her that. Well, I, no. well it's yeah. So there we are. I've learned something today. I wouldn't have got the GNS one, so I'm I'm feeling. <laughs> yeah. Some people will take that as a badge of honour, Helen, not being able to get. Yeah, I, I know, but I know I know I'm as a fan, so I'm kind of being polite. <laughs> uh, next up, Spiriti Infernale, Ninfi e Pastori, Echo. Oh. Um, Mm. Orpheus and Eurydice. My pronunciation is terrible. This is going out nationally, so I'm embarrassing. No. Uh, is that what you're going for? Yeah. Uh, no, I'm afraid not. It isn't. Would you like the rest of the memo? Is it Orfeo? It is Monteverdi's oh, Orfeo, yes. A much bigger <laughs> cast of characters than the Gluck. Uh, Tony Prosopina, Speranza, Massagera, Eurydice, Orfeo, La Musica. Uh, let's do the final one, uh, though it is a 3-1 victory to, to Emma. Uh, we've definitely done this one on Opercast before, I remember. Uh, chorus. People obviously can't see because we're doing this on Zoom. Emma's like got a massive grin now. Well, <laughs> I'm just pleased I got the GNS one right. It's fine, Emma, we're friends. Uh, final one, very quickly. Chorus, a page, a court usher, Marullo, Count Monteroni, uh, Matteo I mean, Borsa. Helen, do you want to have a go? How are you doing it? It's Regoletto. It is Regoletto. Count and Countess Ciprano, Giovanna, Maddalena, Spadafacile, the Duke of Mantua, uh, I would say Gilda, but I think it's Gilda, isn't it? And Rigoletto. Uh, congratulations. Well done, Emma. Thank you. Well done. Um, it's been a delight and joy. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, David. Yeah, pleasure as always. Thank you to you, Helen. Always a lot of fun. You know, I always like a chat. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next month. Goodbye. <laughs>